All right, guys, you ready? Awesome. Let's see here. Let's see here. Let's see here. Ellie, can you pray for us? Sure. Great. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you that we can all gather together to talk about your word and talk about the wonderful acts you're doing through the early disciples and Christians in the church. I hope that we can all hear the words Mr. Baker has to say to us and receive them and benefit from them. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. All right, so guys, why don't you pull out your assignments, which are due today. Those of you who have them, of course, non-auditors. All right, so what are some things you guys learned about Jesus in the book of Acts? And you can just say things. Don't, don't raise your hand or anything. Just say it. Great point. Yes, Jesus has all authority. That's right. The name of Jesus has all authority. That's right. Jesus was still hated by the Pharisees. Even mm. after he was dead. Good point. He fulfilled all the Old Testament. Uh-huh. You can see that especially in Stephen's speech. Yes. All the history of the Old Testament leading up to Jesus. Some others? What do we learn about Jesus in the book of Acts? Any of, you, any of you guys noticed all the names for Jesus that were used in the early chapters? There's a lot of names. Yeah. Isaac, did you start to say something? Yeah. I'm saying uh, in Luke, and at least Matthew, I know, he says that the helper will come at Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit was pulled out on them. So Jesus is still active, even though, like, as a man, he died. Yes, that's right. Two more. What are two more two more things we learn about Jesus in the book of Acts? And if you didn't do a paper, it's fine just to say something you learned as you read the book of Acts. <clears throat> Good morning, Anna. So the question is, what did we learn about Jesus in the book of Acts? Using your uh, your writing assignment, if you did it, if you have it. Two more, two more things we learn about Jesus. Anyone? Anyone? Good. Yeah, that's right. That's a, that's a big theme in the book of Acts. And maybe related to um, kind of the storyline of Christ, what's another thing that gets a big emphasis in Jesus? Um, do you get much at all about his birth? Do you remember anything about his birth? Hardly anything. Um, anything about his his life, his teaching, and his miracles? You guys remember anything mentioned about that? It's described, but it not not a lot. Um, it's crucifixion and resurrection. A lot of which? Crucifixion and resurrection. Yeah. Especially his resurrection. His resurrection gets a lot of emphasis in the book of Acts. All the sermons, uh, they kind of culminate in the resurrection. And then sometimes they go on to final judgment. But the resurrection gets a huge emphasis in the book of Acts. 
All right, good job. Now you can turn them in. Thank you. Thank you so very much. You guys know just what I just what I wanted. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Kirsten. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent. Electronics fine. All right, so why do we need the book of Acts? What is, if you think about uh, your New Testament, Matthew to Revelation, what's unique about the book of Acts? What are some things unique about the book of Acts? It's mostly history. All right, so it's history, which makes it similar to which books of the New Testament? Luke, yes, and those books like Luke, which are called the, the Gospels. So Acts is like the Gospels, but it's also very different than the Gospels. Why? Yeah, so the Gospels obviously are stories of Christ. Acts is after, uh, except for the first chapter, Christ is, it's, the book of Acts is after the, the life of Christ. All right, so... That sets it apart from the Gospels. What about all those other books after the book of Acts? What's distinct about the book of Acts? Well, that's true in terms of the, uh, the people of God. Uh, they have the Holy Spirit in a very different way in the book of Acts. That's true. Of course, in the epistles, they have the Holy Spirit in the same way. Um, so that's actually not different. Um, you get it described in the book of Acts, which is different. But what are the, the books after the book of Acts we call what? Epistles or letters. Those are letters from a, a Christian or a group of Christians to other Christians. Acts is not a letter. Uh, so the epistles follow the book of Acts. And then you get to Revelation, which is, we'll, we'll see, it's, it's a distinct kind of literature as well. Apocalyptic, you know, the return, the revelation of Christ. Um, so the book of Acts, you have all this stuff about Christ on one side. You have all the letters on the other side. So the book of Acts is very much like a bridge that connects you from the ministry of Jesus to the ministry of the apostles that we read about in the, in the, the letters of the New Testament. So that's distinct. Um, the other thing that's distinct is the, all the letters that, that we read in the rest of our New Testament are by guys like Paul and Peter and Timothy and Silas and um, uh, the Apostle John, Jude, James. So these are all guys that are described in the book of Acts. So we read their, their histories in the book of Acts, and then we read their letters after that. And so we need, we need the book of Acts to put all those letters into some kind of historical context. So without the book of Acts, we would those letters would be very hard to interpret. It'd be hard to figure out what's, what's really happening. But with the book of Acts, we can, we can place almost all the letters in a very specific part of the book of Acts, especially the letters of Paul. Uh, so as we work through 
Acts, um, not today, but next class, we'll, we'll, um, we'll kind of tell you where along the way in the book of Acts, Paul's letters are written. So the, the uh, Acts is kind of the historical background of the historical setting for all those letters. Um, when it comes to being the church, we need the book of Acts because it gives us a vision for how to live as Christians, how to, how to live as a church. We hopefully will get to it today, but at the very end of, of chapter 2, you get this very vivid description of the church. So Pentecost, Holy Spirit falls, church is born in this new way, um, and then Luke describes the church in these uh, six or eight verses. And in some ways, our church, Cornerstone, and a lot of churches in this city and the world, actually, are trying to become like that church. So we see that church, and we... Uh, the way God describes the church in this chapter and in other places in the New Testament, you realize this is not just a this is not just telling us what happened, which is just pure history, but it's also being held up to us as a vision. Be like this. Um, so it's kind of like we talked about in um, if you were in my Old Testament class, the um, you know the heroes and the villains. You know, generally, you should be like the heroes and you should not be like the villains in any any biblical story. Uh, so, and God makes it clear, you know, it's not like some modern movie where you can't really tell who the good guy is, who the bad guy is. Um, be like the good guys, don't be like the bad guys. Um, and in the book of Acts, it's like that. Be like the church. Um, um, what else do we want to say about that? Yeah, the, the model of mission or evangelism that you see in the book of Acts, uh, you get an announcement of the vision we'll see in verse 8. And then it happens, uh, the gospel expands, it spreads throughout the whole Mediterranean region and the rest of the book. And that's, that's God telling us um, his people should be a missionary people, a, an evangelistic people. Hey, Marielle. That's all right. We were saving an outline just for you. Thank you. Yep. So a vision for mission. And then another thing that um, is a little more subtle, but it's still true. Genevieve, how are you doing? Um, is um, the structure of the church. So we don't just learn about what the church is like um, in terms of um, uh, how we should treat each other or um, what our worship is like, but also the structure of the church. So churches are led by elders and um, you see deacons, even apostles, actually. We'll think about that as we go. So how the church should be organized. So all that is in the book of Acts. And so we need the book of Acts um, for, all, for many reasons, many, many reasons. So we talked about who wrote it. Um, I don't, can't remember if we did this in, in our, when we were talking about Luke or not, but turn to Acts chapter 16. Anybody need a Bible? Are you all good? All right, so in Acts 16, <coughs> um, there's this thing called the Jerusalem Council, which is in Acts 15. And at, and at the end of that, um, Paul and Barnabas are talking about leaving to uh, revisit the churches that they planted earlier in the book of Acts. And there's this famous dispute. Barnabas wants to bring his cousin, John Mark, Paul says, no, he's the guy who left us before. And so Barnabas and Paul actually part ways. Um, 
Ultimately, John Mark is going to be rejoined to the Apostle Paul. But anyway, they go different directions. And so you get to 16. It says, um, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple is there named Timothy. So that's the first meeting of this guy, Timothy. You know, we have letters in our New Testament, First and Second Timothy. This is that guy. All right. So we get to 16, verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. So they, the guys that Luke is talking about, um, they did this, they did that. And then you get to verse 10. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis. Did you notice that? Subtle change in pronouns. So what do you call pronouns like they? Do you remember? Third person. So you're talking about they, those people out there. They did this, they did that. But when you get to we, that's a first person. That's, a, that's an I and a we. So we, I'm part of the group now. So if, I'm, if, if I say we did this, well, then I was... I was within that group. And so that tells us, and I think, we did we over this before in the gospel? We did, okay. Yeah, so as you, when you get to chapter 16 and beyond, just notice that there's, there's probably uh, 10 or 12 passages where, where Luke is going to switch from they did this to a we did this, which tells you that Luke was part of um, Paul's traveling entourage sometimes, but not all the time. And so the way these guys ministered, they, they all traveled a lot. And so they didn't always travel together. Uh, so sometimes uh, Paul would send this guy to some place and he would go on to another place. But when you get to the end of the book, um, Luke is with Paul in the Roman, in Roman house arrest. So when you get to Acts 28, which you'll read for next time, those two years, um, he's with Paul. So when we're trying to identify... Um, who wrote the book of Luke, we actually go to the epistles of Paul and we look at who, who are the guys that Paul mentions being with him at these various points. And so one of the important points is uh, uh, when, he's in, when he's in Rome, uh, in the epistles he writes from Rome. And so we'll see that Luke is, Luke is with him. And so Luke becomes one of the guys you have to consider as possible. And then uh, we hone in from there to get a high degree of confidence, and that's never been doubted. So Luke is Luke has been attached to this uh, to both Luke and Acts from the very beginning. All right. So the author we we get introduced to him in Colossians four. Luke, the beloved physician. Luke, the historian. Luke, the theologian. We've talked about all that. When did he write it? Seems like most likely he wrote it during his house arrest, uh, Paul's house arrest, during those two years. There doesn't seem any other really good reason why Luke would end the story there unless that's where he stopped writing. That's when he wrote it, and that's when he stopped writing. All right, so let's go to um, Acts, the first two verses. Logan, can you read the first two verses of the book of Acts for us, please? Excellent. All right, there's a lot that Luke gives away to us in these two verses. He starts off and he says, In the first book, O Theophilus, 
So what two things do we learn in those, just with that? Or at least it's a sequel to something. We know it was, it's, it's, it's Luke, but yeah, it's at least the second part of a two-part thing, right? Yeah, so there's a, this is the second book, there is a first book. And then what's the second thing we learn? Yeah, Theophilus, who's, who's, uh, who we should think of as a, as a person, most likely the guy who funded the writing of this project. Um, it, was not, it was not easy to, I mean, it's not easy today to write a book. It, it wasn't easy then to write a book. It took a lot of money and a lot of resources. So Theophilus seems like is the guy who funded that, and so Luke is dedicating it to him. All right, so that's just in the first couple phrases there. And then it says, so in the first book, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So that's obviously describing the gospel of Luke, right? What is that word began? What's significant about that? Uh, he's, uh, that is true. He's still doing stuff, absolutely. But what might be an implication? So he's he's obviously putting this at the front of his of the book of Acts. I guess this is a continuing of what Jesus is doing and teaching, right? Yeah, so this is so in the first book, it's what Jesus began to do and teach, and now I'm going to tell you what Jesus continued to do and teach. So that's why sometimes if if um, you're looking for a good title for the book of Acts. Let me get my special secret markers out. You can't think of the book as the Acts of Jesus. So it's... Um, yeah, and then one other point, all that Jesus began to do and teach, let's see here, and then we'll go to verse 2, until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So how did Jesus do his ministry? So we know what he did. He was doing and teaching. How did he do it? In verse 2 there. Through the Holy Spirit. We don't tend to think of Jesus needing to do things through the Holy Spirit, do we? We tend to think if Jesus does, does stuff, but we actually need the Holy Spirit. But actually the way that Jesus is presented in Luke and Acts, he does things through the Holy Spirit and the rest of the, the Gospels as well. Um, so another re a reminder that we could also call Acts the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And we can also call it the Acts of the Apostles because it is. And no one of those titles is more accurate than any of the others. You're just, you're just accenting different things. So if I accent 
the Acts of the Apostles, if I refer to it that way, which is the most common way, then I'm just kind of giving the basic uh, historical truth to it. So we're reading about the apostles as well as other men and women, but we are reading about the apostles and some of the significant things they did. If I, if I refer to it as the Acts of Jesus, then I'm accenting the fact that Jesus is presented in Acts as ascended, giving out the Spirit, and through that Spirit, the Acts do what they do. Sorry, the apostles do what they do. Um, but the only reason the apostles do what they do is because of the Holy Spirit. So I can also see what's going on here in the, as the work of the Holy Spirit, not just uh, the history of the apostles. So all three of those things really capture something important about, uh, about the book of Acts, and they're all hinted at there in those first two verses. All right, so we, um, we know that the book of Acts is after Jesus. However, chapter 1 starts with Christ. So in chapter 1, Jesus is still on the scene. He hasn't, he hasn't left the scene yet. So he's resurrected, but he hasn't left the scene yet. So what's the, what is that event called when he does leave the scene for good? Yeah, his ascension at least physically leaves the scene. He doesn't actually totally leave the scene. All right, so we get our first two verses, our introduction, our um, kind of a formal introduction. Luke, the historian, um, includes a formal introduction, as any good historian would. Um, Then he says that Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. From your knowledge of uh, the Gospels, what are some of the proofs? that Jesus uses to prove that he's alive. So it says that he presented himself alive by many convincing proofs. What were some of those proofs? He showed himself to people. So just appearance, yeah. But there's one actually that Luke continue, that keeps mentioning. It's kind of a funny one. He ate. Yeah, Luke keeps emphasizing that he, he ate. He ate food in their presence. Um, you know, almost, almost playing on their sense of what a ghost might do. A ghost might appear, but a ghost isn't going to eat your fish and eat your bread. I'm here. You know I'm alive because I'm actually eating your food. Um, so he presents himself alive by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Um, Verse 4, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Referring to Pentecost, right? We, we catch that? All right, so the, so the pouring out of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2, which we're going to get to, Lord willing, what are the different ways it's described in these, in these two verses here, verses 4 and 5? The promise that Jesus himself made? And the promise of the Father. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so it's the promise of the Father, which is kind of, um, kind of curious, we might not know where the Father promised that if we didn't know our Old Testaments really well or Acts chapter 2 really well. But in Joel 2, Joel 2, 28 through 32, the minor prophet, God does promise that he would pour out the Spirit. Um, And then also Jesus himself promises. 
John baptizes with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Um, all right, so verse 6. So when, uh, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, when will these... Uh, when will, uh, sorry, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, is this the, is this the end? Is this the culmination of all things? Um, and then he said, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So once again, just like in, in his crucifixion, um, you know, you had the you had Palm Sunday where he's he's walking he's he's being paraded into Jerusalem on a donkey, um, and crowds are lining the, lining the street. They're putting palm branches on the road because royalty is coming to town, so they're expecting that this is probably the time when uh, when he's you know declared king and he's going to conquer Rome. But of course, a week less than a week later, he's crucified, and then a week later, he's resurrected. And so once again, well, so now they see him, well, okay, now Jesus has been raised from the dead. Surely now this must be the time when all the end things are going to happen. And Jesus basically says, it's just not for you to worry about that. The Father's got it under control. Don't worry about it. But what you should worry about, what you should be thinking about is this promise of power. So in verse 8, uh, now, the, now this giving of the Spirit so it's already been talked about as the promise of the Father. It's already been talked about as the baptism that Jesus is going to do. Now it's talked about as power, power for witness. Uh, so bearing witness is evangelism. It's testifying of Christ. And you need power to do that. Uh, and that power is going to come from the Holy Spirit. But what's, what's critical here, or one of the things critical in this verse, is that geographical listing there. So Jerusalem, and then in all Judea and Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. So it starts right where they are, which is Jerusalem. They're right outside Jerusalem. They're on the, um, the Mount of Olives, right next to uh, the temple, actually. So they, first is Jerusalem. You're going to be witnesses there, and that very much is going to happen. But then it's going to be Judea and Samaria, so it's going to spread out throughout the whole country. But then it's going to go to the end of the earth. And you might be thinking, yeah, but there is no end of the earth. It's a circle. It's a globe. It's a sphere. There's no end of a sphere. You know, it's not a soccer field where you can go off the field. Um, it just means, obviously, far away. Um, and in some ways, the key thing is it's going to go, the, the, the ministry of the, of the gospel is going to go from the very center of the Jewish people to the farthest reaches. And anytime you get outside of 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 Israel, well, you're kind of in the farthest reaches. Uh, so the farthest place we get to in the book of Acts is is which city? If you know our geography. Rome. Yeah, Rome is the farthest place we get to in the book of Acts. It's actually pretty far. Uh, that's, that's no, it's maybe like crossing the United States or something. We can do that pretty easily, but obviously if you're traveling by foot, it takes a lot longer. Or if you're traveling by a sailboat, it takes a lot longer to go that kind of distance. Um, but the big thing is it's, you go from the promised land, you know, Jerusalem and Israel, to very much not the promised land, you know, that, those countries out there, other nations. Um, but the other, the other purpose this verse has is in, 
ancient history like this, you didn't have a table of contents. Uh, you know, we open up our, our Bibles or any book and we can look down at table of contents. We can see what page chapter 4 starts on in chapter 12 or whatever. In the ancient world, oftentimes the table of contents would be, it would be in a verse like this. It would be, a, it would be written like this. It would be some, uh, something the historian said that would give you some kind of sense of how he's organizing his material. And so this is how Luke organizes his material. So the first part of the book of Acts is Jerusalem. And then the next part of the book of Acts uh, is Judea and Samaria. And then the last part of the book of Acts is the ends of the earth. Uh, so the Jerusalem chapters are um, basically one through seven. You get to the stoning of Stephen. Um, and then when you get to eight, there's the persecution that, that breaks out after the stoning of Stephen. And then the apostles are scattered uh, and the other Christians are scattered. And so they begin to preach the gospel into other places. And so uh, Philip is, the, is one of the first evangelists. He preaches in Samaria in chapter eight. And then Paul gets saved in chapter nine. And then in chapter 13, God's going to say, send out Paul and Barnabas to the ministry to which I have sent them. And so once, once you get to that call to, call to action for Paul and Barnabas, then you really get to the, uh, not the farthest reaches of the earth, but you get to the farthest reaches with respect to Israel and Jerusalem, um, effectively the end of the earth. So that, that progression is, um, you want to take note of that. Okay, and then the ascension. So when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of, the, out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? That's a great question, isn't it? Because Jesus just went into the sky. That's why I'm looking up into heaven. This Jesus, uh, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So there's going to be a physical return, a visible return of Christ. Um, it doesn't mean that... Um, it won't be as quiet or as peaceful, you know, this, this time when they're watching Jesus ascend, in, in some ways you can imagine that being a quiet, peaceful situation. When Jesus returns, that will not be quiet and peaceful. That will, that will be trumpets blaring, you know, military procession behind him. It will be very a dramatic, violent situation. But it will be visible um, and, it, and it will be physical. So in that sense, it's just like this first ascension or this ascension. All right, so ascension's a big deal. Luke is the only one who records it in such detail. So he records it here and at the end of his, his gospel. So it's recorded twice, um, but he is the only author who records it. Other authors refer to it in, in more general terms. Um, Christ now seated at the right hand of the Father or something like that, uh, like in Philippians 2. Um, all right, so they return to Jerusalem. Uh, Luke lists the people that are there with them. Um, the apostles, there's 120 or so gathered. And then there's the, there's, the, there's the need to replace Judas. So Judas, the betrayer, committed suicide, did not repent before he committed suicide. Um, so he commits suicide out of regret for betraying Christ. So they need a 12th man to finish out their... Um, uh, 
their group of eyewitnesses, their official eyewitnesses. So I think we covered this last time, but, but let me hit it again because it, it, it will feature prominently in the book of Acts. So verse 21 and 22, still in chapter 1. Um, and just so you guys know, my goal is to get to the end of chapter 2 today, and then we'll cover the rest of Acts in our next class. Um, so 21 and 22, this is now, uh, this is the, the, the job posting. What kind of guy do we need to do this job uh, that, that we have, a, you know, the 12th man? What, is it, what kind of a man do we need? Um, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. All right, so what are the items of the job description uh, for this 12th man? What, is, what kind of a person does he need to be? Someone to accompany them in the baptism of John until Jesus' ascension. Yeah, so the key thing is he was physically present. He was a physical eyewitness. He didn't just hear about all the things. He saw all the things. He didn't just hear about the Sermon on the Mount, this powerful sermon that Jesus taught. He was there. He didn't just hear about the feeding of the 5,000. He was there. He didn't just hear about the crucifixion. He was there. He didn't just hear about Christ raised from the dead. He saw Christ raised from the dead. And then it goes all the way back to the, the beginning of Jesus' ministry at the baptism of John. So the key thing with this 12th man is that he was a physical, true eyewitness. And so we are, you know, we are witnesses. We're going to, sometimes when you talk about evangelism, you talk about bearing witness to Christ. Uh, I, I want to be a good witness for Christ at work or at uh, school or whatever. Um, but these guys are eyewitnesses in a very different sense than we are. So we, we're testifying of what Jesus has done in our life. And that's, that's true. That's a true testimony. Um, but these guys were eyewitnesses of the original events when they happened. All right, so they... Um, so their, their testimony is, is unique and it's necessary for the rest of, the rest of church history. So our, our understanding of, the, of Christ and, and his work has everything to do with these guys, and they're preserving for us this, this um, inspired testimony. So you get in these, in these two verses, you get what kind of man he needs to be, which is primarily an eyewitness, and then you get what he's going to do. The, the key thing with the 12, they're going to do a lot of things, a lot of very good things. But the really key thing that they're going to do uh, is they're going to be a witness to his resurrection. Isn't, and that's interesting too, isn't it? That of all the events that Jesus did, all the wonderful miracles he did, it's actually the resurrection that needs the most eyewitness verification and, and testimony. That's what needs to be proclaimed far and wide. Because when you get to the resurrection, suddenly... Christ is no longer just a great prophet. He's no, you know, Elijah was a, he did all kinds of amazing miracles in his life. Um, but it's the resurrection of Christ where it's, it's suddenly that Christ is, is not just a great prophet. He is, he's the living God. I mean, that's not the only indicator that he's the living God, but that is, that is a definitive one. It's a powerful one. All right, so these two guys get put forward, Joseph and then Matthias. Matthias is chosen. And I think that's the last we ever hear of Matthias. Um, 
All right, so then we get to the day of Pentecost. And this is one of those chapters, um, you know, if you're an underliner, you uh, eventually you're going to underline the entire chapter because it's all amazing and important. Um, so it's possible that you don't need to underline everything. Just assume it's all important and all wonderful. Um, but every section has its own powerful aspect to it when you're talking about Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> and this is, uh, you know, we've, we've done different timelines. And Oh, hey. Did not see that coming. If any of you guys become inventors when you get older, if you could invent a good eraser, that would be awesome. I'll, I'll buy it. I'll buy it from you. I'm sure that's plenty of all the incentive you need to invent a good eraser. All right. Oh, well. All right. So we got creation. Of course, creation starts with a dot because... because it has a beginning. God does not have a beginning, but creation has a beginning. We get to the new creation. Christ returns, judgment, and then we are, we, are, um, we are with him in the new heavens and the new earth. And then in the middle, we put Christ, not because he's the technical middle of however many years it's going to be till he returns, but because he's, he's the turning point of history. There's, I mean, history, rightfully so, is B.C. and A.D., you know, when we think of years on a, on a <clears throat> you know, we're in 20, actually AD 2023, um, because something happened tw 2023 years ago that divided history in two. Um, so we, we think about Abraham in 1800 BC. Because something happened 1,800 years after Abraham that divided history into. All right, so, but when you get when you think about Christ, so his birth, his crucifixion, uh, resurrection, this first Pentecost after the resurrection is another turning point in the history of the world. Um, there's no, there's no other historical event since Pentecost more important than Pentecost. More important than the Pentecost we're reading about in Acts chapter 2. Uh, a lot of huge things have happened. You know, the rise and fall. Well, not the rise, but the Roman Empire was already there. But the fall of the Roman Empire or dividing uh, the church into the Eastern Orthodox and the Catholics or the Catholics and the Protestants or World War I and II. These are all huge events. But none of them are more important than Pentecost. It's, it's, it's a huge event. And so uh, the reason for that is because because Pentecost is what starts the church age. Uh, and the church age, you can also call uh, the age of the Holy Spirit, not the age of the high school, but the age of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so what the people of God are like, what the church is like after Pentecost is 
is just not what it was like before. There's continu- there's continuance there. Uh, it's um, we'll get to that. Um, and then our experience and our our uh, possession of the Holy Spirit is different now than it was before Pentecost. It doesn't mean the Old Testament saints had the Holy Spirit. So we don't want to think that we have the Holy Spirit. They didn't have the Holy Spirit because that would not be true. You cannot you cannot come to faith. You cannot repent. You can't you can't be holy apart from the Holy Spirit. So they had the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, so when David prays in Psalm 51 famously, do not take your Holy Spirit from me, they had some experience of the Holy Spirit. But it's nothing like it is today. So for Christians today, it doesn't mean every Christian in every moment. Um, but overall, our experience of the Holy Spirit is just different. And so this church age can starts at Pentecost and it continues until the return of Christ. So this Pentecost isn't like any other Pentecost. This is a special, special one. All right, let's think about what Pentecost is. So do we remember the, uh, the annual cycle of feasts? This is for extra credit. Uh, uh, the annual cycle of feasts in the Jewish calendar. Where does it, maybe we'll start with where it starts. Where does, it, where does the Jewish calendar start? It starts with Passover because that's when they were delivered out of, out of Egypt. And so that became the beginning of their year, the beginning of their, uh, their annual celebrations. Um, uh, Passover. And you guys know about when during the year that happens? Yes, yes, and yes. Um, so when Jesus eats the final meal with the disciples, what, what, that, what, that's the Passover meal, right? Yeah, so when he dies, they're eating the Passover. Um, now their calendar is not like our calendar. It's weird. Um, but it's basically March, April. And then is Pentecost. Anybody know what that word means? Good job. Or maybe you read my notes. Did you? Well done. Yeah, the word Pentecost means 50 because uh, the way that you figure out when Pentecost is is you start at the Passover and then you count seven weeks and you add and then you add a day so it's sabbaths so you're counting seven sabbaths and then it's the day after the sabbath um so it's 50 days obviously so um so jesus is with them for 40 days pentecost is 50 days later so there's a 10-day break where they're waiting on christ uh to return um now, they, the day after the Sabbath is what day of the week? Yeah, it's Sunday. And what other huge thing happens, changes the world on a Sunday? Resurrection. The resurrection. That's right. 
Yeah, so Christians worship on Sunday. We do, we do not worship on Saturday. We worship on Sunday. Some people call that the Sabbath. Um, New Testament maybe doesn't do that, but some Christians think of that as their Sabbath. But they still worship on Sundays. There's a very small number of Christians that worship on Saturday. Seventh-day Adventists, they're called. Um, but that's a very small number. Uh, from the beginning, Christians have worshipped on Sundays. Yeah, so um, so that's the next feast. And then you get to the, the fall cycle. Um, yeah, anybody know uh, the next... The next group of feasts. Yeah, there's actually there's a. Um, yep, and I can't remember which of the order which it goes in. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that's that's um, Pentecost. Um, so booths, trumpets. Uh, yeah, Pentecost is actually Feast of Weeks as well. <laughs> That's what makes it so confusing to get all the feasts, because uh, in different parts of the Old Testament, it's, it's said in different ways. So this, um, sorry, we, do, we didn't say the date. This is basically May. And then these fall festivals um, are in the fall. So in the seventh month, You've got a couple weeks of, of feasts and celebrations. Um, and this is, I believe, um, yeah, it's at least September. I can't remember whether it's August, September, or September, October. Um, so Passover... You're celebrating the deliverance from Egypt. So the, it's kind of like salvation. Pentecost is a harvest festival. It's when, um, the reason it's called the, the Feast of First Fruits is it's when, um, I can't remember which crop it is, but when one of the crops is starting to come out of the ground. And so you take the first, uh, the first uh, uh, visible crops and then you sacrifice those to the Lord. So it's the Feast of First Fruits. Um, the Feast of Booths, Trumpets, Day of Atonement, these fall festivals are after the harvest. So you've had the harvest, and now you come, you come together once again. Um, so this is celebrating really forgiveness, because this is when the Lord passed over us and delivered us in Egypt. But then you get to a harvest. But here, Day of Atonement, what are we celebrating with the Day of Atonement? That's uh, Leviticus 16 talks about that. Um, Yeah, atonement is when, you know, in some ways the word gives it away at one, at one. So you have two parties alienated, hostile toward each other, and then they are made at one with each other. So it's kind of celebrating. um, It's the day to... um, Doesn't exactly happen like this, but the... But it's a picture of total forgiveness. So you, get, you come back together in that one time, and it's really getting forgiveness for all the sins that everyone committed that whole year, um, and including the priest who's going to offer the sin sacrifice, including the altar 
that the, the sacrifices are going to be made on. Everything has to be cleansed. So that's kind of the annual cleansing of all things. So, um, but we know that forgiveness doesn't happen apart from faith. So if you do a sacrifice without faith, you're not forgiven. And somewhat mysteriously, if you trust in Christ, but you don't offer the sacrifice, you're forgiven. So faith is the essential thing. Um, but, but the sacrifice is still a picture of the forgiveness that we all need. So those are the three festivals, and this is, um, so they're tied to the, the agricultural calendar um, and, and to different spiritual activities of the Lord. So the reason to go all that trouble is what, why is Pentecost a, such an appropriate time for the Pentecost to happen? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's the first fruits and it's also the beginning of the harvest. Well, and, which is what first fruits really is. It's the beginning of the harvest. It's it's the actual it's it's part of the actual harvest, but it's also the beginning of the fullness of the harvest. And so when the Holy Spirit falls there, um, it wasn't just a powerful revival for those 120 people that were gathered, but by the end of the chapter, 3000 people are saved. Two chapters later, 5,000 people are in the church, and then the church just continues to explode throughout the Mediterranean region. So Pentecost, um, numerically, is this very significant event. Um, So not just spiritually in our kind of timeline of redemption, but also numerically. It's this very powerful event. All right, so that gets us to the fifth word in chapter 2. So when the day of Pentecost arrived... Um, so then you get the actual giving of the Holy Spirit. So they're all, they're all together in one place. So the 120 are gathered, and, and, they, and they are identified in chapter 1. Um, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, not to be confused with Judas, who betrayed Christ, Judas, the son of James. I'm sure for the rest of his life he kept saying, not that Judas, you know, I'm, my name's Judas. Oh, really? Not that Judas. Anyway, Judas, the son of James, um, and then together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers, as in Jesus' brothers, plural. So we've talked about that. He wasn't, he wasn't an only child. He was a unique child, but he was not an only child. <clears throat> um, all right, so when it says they were all together, that's the all together. That's all together. And then... Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So that's the moment. That's the moment of Pentecost. And then things, things start to happen after, but after that, but that's the key moment, the, the key giving of the Holy Spirit. Um. Now, Peter's going to go on and explain what's just happened, but that's the key moment. So the Holy Spirit is identified with a mighty rushing wind, which might seem kind of random, but, but wind, breath, and spirit are all from the same Greek word and they're all from the same Hebrew word. Um, so the, you know, Genesis 1, verse 2, when the, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, um, well, that word for uh, so the Spirit is also the word for for breath and for wind. And so then in Genesis chapter 2, when God forms the man from dust and then he breathes life into him, that that word breath 
You know, it's related to the word for spirit and breath and wind. So it's fitting that the Holy Spirit would be identified with, with wind. So you think of um, John chapter 3 as well. So John, um, so Nicodemus comes to Jesus, um, and Jesus says, uh, no one can come to the, no one, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Um, then he begins to talk about the Spirit of God, uh, just like wind. It goes where you, um, you can't see it, but you can see the results of it. And then fire, um, the baptism, uh, the baptism of Jesus, uh, when John prom- promises that one's coming after me, who, who I baptize you with water, but one's coming after me who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Uh, so there is, there is this connection between um, uh, fire and the Spirit, fire and the work of Christ, um, fire in the presence of God. So you think, of, you think of the fire that was there at the burning bush, fire that went before them, went before the Israelites when they're wandering in the wilderness. It was a pillar of a cloud by day, but a fire by night. Uh, so, the, so fire in the presence of God are also things that, that go together. So these symbols are very uh, rich in terms of the Old Testament, and then they communicate things about God. So he's pure, you know, wind, he's powerful. But in this case, uh, you know, with the, with the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, you're looking at something over there. And you're probably not wanting to get too close to it because it's a bit scary. Or the, um, the glory of God in the temple, you know, which is also like a fire and cloud sort of mixed together. The glory of God's in the temple, so the priests can't go in there uh, when the temple's anointed or when the tabernacle's anointed. But in this case, the tongue of fire is it's over us. It's right on top of us, each one of us. So we're all like a burning bush. You know, the fire is burning, except and we're not consumed. And in here, the, 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 ac- the action that's provoked in us or the manifestation of the Spirit is that we speak in other tongues as the, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so this is speaking in tongues where uh, you're going to speak a language that someone else knows. Uh, so we're going to see in, ch- in the verses that follow that this is speaking in tongues, tongues where I'm speaking a language I don't know, but someone else in, in, this, in, in my presence knows. There's another kind of speaking in tongues where I don't know the language and someone else and no one else in, in my presence knows the language. So that's, a, that's, that's what's talked about in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. But we're at Pentecost now. So the Spirit's been poured out, tongues of fire on all the 120 who are gathered. Um, they begin to speak. And that's, that's one thing about the work of the Spirit in the book, in the book of Acts is it's visible and audible, not always audible, and not always visible, but it's one of the two. There's some clear um, ability you have to detect the activity and work of the Spirit. Um, you know, so that's why uh, when the Spirit falls on a person or on a group, other people don't ask if it happens. It's because there's something about the person or the group that it makes it obvious that, oh, the Holy Spirit just fell on that person. Um, so that'll be important as we, as we consider the rest of the book of Acts. All right, so there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at, this, and at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. 
And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not these who are speaking Galileans? You know, simple people, um, not known for being um, well-educated and, and sophisticated and, you know, knowing many languages, you know, like some scholars or Europeans would be today. These are, these are just simple Galileans. So you look at them and you don't think, oh, this is someone who knows several languages. How is it that we hear each of us in his own language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. They're just drunk. So that's quite a list of languages. So that 120 people baptized in the Holy Spirit explode in all of these languages. And suddenly, I don't know how many, how many that is. Is that 15 or so? 12 or 15 different languages are suddenly being spoken by this group of people that maybe they knew two or three. You know, they would have known Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek, maybe those three languages. But now suddenly they're speaking in all of these different languages. And maybe, you know, it wouldn't be the, the language speaking that makes other people think, oh, they're drunk. Uh, it would have been something else. The joy, the, uh, were they dancing? I don't know. Were they just singing spontaneously to the Lord? We don't know. But they are telling in their own tongues the mighty works of God. So there was some kind of worship happening here. And it was unexpected and demonstrative enough that other people said, oh, these guys are, these guys are intoxicated. So that becomes, that's kind of interesting if you think of uh, a verse later in the New Testament, like Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So somehow that filling and, and drunkenness, they might look the same on the outside, but they're not all the same. But that's, so that's, um, that's the event, verses 1 through 13, and now the explanation. So you get the, the divine act of God, the revelation by act, and now you get the divine explanation by the Apostle Peter. So we got that act and then explanation, and that's what you have all throughout our Bibles. So God doing something, and then he explains it. So he does something which is a, revel a revelation of himself, and then he'll explain it. So creation happened like that way. God did it, um, and then there was a, the divine explanation. What does this mean? The Red Sea uh, parts, and then God explains it. You know, what, what happens? Um, and the work of Christ is like that. So Jesus is explaining himself along the way. That's true. But then he's crucified, raised, ascended. And then the explanation in the epistles you know, it's volumes, it's volumes on what he, what he has done. So, that, so you have divine act and then divine explanation. All right, so here's the divine explanation. So Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who, do, who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. It's only nine in the morning. Of course we're not drunk. Kind of a funny little introduction to a sermon there, isn't it? But this is what this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So the divine explanation for what God did is in a minor prophet, which tells us a couple things. One is 
Um, and this is also a pattern, in, aside from creation, uh, the pattern is that God tells you what he's going to do, and then he does it, and then he, then he really explains it. So the prophecy is there beforehand, and the prophecy is usually uh, hard, to, hard to understand, it's hard to imagine, um, and it's, sometimes it's hard to, when the, when the event actually happens, people don't always see that, oh, this is a prophecy that, that somebody spoke. But nonetheless, there's a prophecy, and then the action, and then there's the explanation of the action. And so in this case, the, the prophecy, um, there's other prophecies about the coming of the Holy Spirit, but the, the definitive prophecy that's fulfilled on the day of Pentecost is from Joel 2, 28-32. And Peter quotes it, and this is the longest quote. I believe this is the longest quote in our whole New Testament. It's certainly the longest quote in the book of Luke and Acts. All right, and so we, it, <clears throat> so the prophecy from Joel, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. An amazing prophecy. Amazing. I, uh, <clears throat> I got a degree in 2018, so I did a thesis on this passage, Joel uh, 2, 217 through 21. And so I, I wrote 125 pages on these five verses because there was so much to write. And it was hard to actually keep it down to that many pages. All that is to say, there's a lot here. We won't go into all of it. All right. Uh, let's see, how do we want to start this? Um, All right, so I, I do have an obsession with timelines. I realize that. All right, so in this case, our timeline is the last days, and the last days are marked by what? What's the, what's the evidence that we're in the last days from this passage? The yeah, the pouring out of the Spirit. Um, So the Spirit is poured out, so that's how we know we're in the last days. And then the passage continues, and then what's the final event in the passage? The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood. When? Before the Lord comes. Yeah. So in other words, the, the Lord's return, right? So the day of the Lord, that's, that's where, that, where the passage ends. And who is saved when the, when the Lord comes? Who, is, who are the ones who are saved? Those that call upon the name of the Lord. That's right. All right. So the day of the Lord is when the Lord returns. The last days 
begin when the Spirit is poured out. And so the, the key thing to see is that this era, that's where we, that's where we are now. So we're, we're in the last days. So we're not, we're not at the last day. Uh, well, at least not that we know of. Uh, it's possible that today is the last day. Um, but you know you're at the last day because that's when the Lord returns. We're in the last days because the Holy Spirit has been poured out. And so all the stuff... Um, Two twenty-one to 20, 17 to 21, sorry. Yeah, so all the stuff in 217 to 21 is, is a description of these days, these last days. Uh, so the reason to belabor this is you don't want to think of, of what Peter is saying as something that applies only to the day of Pentecost. It's the last days. So it applies to this whole era until Christ returns. So that's why we're, that's why we're charismatics. We're continuationists. We believe that the gifts of the Spirit continue. Um, so we're, you know, if you're, I'll just put it right here. So New Testament, finished. Let's just put that line there. And that's, that's uh, we'll call that, somewhere around AD 70 or AD or 90, somewhere in there, our New Testament is finished. All the documents are finished. So what some people would say is that the gifts of the Spirit continue until the New Testament is finished, and then they, and then they stop. Not all the gifts, but um, prophecy, tongues, miracles, healing, apostles, um, those, those gifts stop. Because the New Testament is finished, we, we no longer need those. But actually what the New Testament itself would tell you is that that's just not how it works. What the New Testament itself would tell you is that in the last, once you're in the last days, all the gifts continue until the last day, and then the gifts stop. So you can see that in Acts 2. You can see, it, see that in a place like Ephesians 4. Uh, those are the two clearest places. Uh, the, the rest of the book of Acts will confirm this. Um, huge issue, contentious, um, and we won't go into the rest of it. So in the last days, so all the things that are here, and what is... If we stay focused in 217 to 21, what is what is the gift that he emphasizes the most? Prophecy. Yeah, that's kind of interesting, but prophecy is the gift that Luke is going to emphasize a lot in the book of Acts. Um, that's um, I don't know, I actually don't know why that is, but um, but that as as the book of Acts unfolds, that's what we're going to see that prophecy keeps men- being mentioned. So um, Significant gift in the book of Acts. It's, it's um, the verbal proclamation of what the Spirit of God puts in our minds. And then in verse 22, he transitions. So the first up to 21, what he's done is explained Pentecost. 
So Pentecost has happened, and then he's explained it. And in verse 22, he transitions, and then he begins to do what Acts 1.8 said. Remember, Acts 1.8 was a promise that when the Holy Spirit falls, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Well, in verse 22, Peter begins to fulfill that. Now he's going to become a witness of Christ in Jerusalem, empowered by the Spirit. And so he preaches Christ. So men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So his birth and his ministry and his crucifixion, all, all given right there. Um, and what's verse 23 is often cited if you're, if you're wrestling with the sovereignty of God. Verse 23 is one of the verses that pe- people point to because they say it brings together two ideas that sometimes seem to be contradictory. Um, so Jesus was crucified according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So who is responsible for the crucifixion? God, the, God is, because God predetermined it. God planned it. God foreknew it. But then see what Peter does there, though. Delivered up according to the definite plan of foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. So the, there's a human sinful act, and there's the sovereignty of God. And so in the, in the mystery of God's sovereignty, he uses even sinful actions of men and women to accomplish his purposes. His purpose was to redeem his people. That could only happen through the crucifixion of Christ. God predetermined that sinful act to happen, which was also a redemptive act, and sinful people are going to do it. But as you'll see in a place like James chapter 2, God is not, God is not the author of sin. So God is not sinning as he is... Uh, creating the situation in which sinful people are going to do sinful things to accomplish God's purposes. So that takes us to the crucifixion. And then you get to verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Um, Skip to verse 32. So there's the longest part of Peter's sermon is is attached to the, the resurrection. So he cites Psalm 16 and then skip to 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. In fact, that's my job, to be a witness of the resurrection. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So now we get another description of Pentecost, uh, another description of the giving of the Spirit. In this one, you imagine Christ, uh, so he's... Remember, he went up through the clouds, uh, so he, he was visible, and then he disappeared in the clouds because he was ascending, and he was ascending to the right hand of the Father. And then Peter tells us that when he ascended to the right hand of the Father, he received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, and then Christ, or Jesus, poured out the Holy Spirit. So Christ the King poured out gifts on his people. So that's, what, that's how Paul talks about it in Ephesians 4. So Christ received the gift and then poured out the gifts. The triumphant one received the gifts and then poured out the gifts. And so in that pouring out, it's, it's evident to the audience around them. That's why they're all standing before Peter. 
Uh, for David did not ascend into, he- into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Quoting Psalm 110. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that, cr- that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So the, the, um, the, the giving of the Spirit is the, is the sign that Christ has taken his seat at the right hand of the Father. Um, and because he's at the right hand of the Father, we know that that's the one who's Lord and Christ. Lord means God, um, and Christ means the anointed one, the anointed one promised in the, in the Old Testament. That's, Jesus is the one, and we know that because of the pouring out of the Spirit. So then he's going to say, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of, the, of, Christ, of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the rest of the book of Acts will confirm that. So people repent and believe. Um, sometimes they're water baptized and then spirit baptized. Sometimes they're spirit baptized and then they're water baptized. We'll see that. Um, but in this case, they hear the word. They're convicted. What must we do? And so Peter tells them to be baptized. And so in verse 41, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So 3,000 people are added to the church. Um, and then the church... Uh, and then the kind of the formal church with led by elders um, and not priests like in the Old Testament. In some ways, the formal church begins. You know, it's, it's part of the people of God from the Old Testament, but it's a new day of the church, the days of the Spirit, the day of the church age. And they devoted, and I'll just finish with reading this passage and then we'll end. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So that's the kind of church we want to be when we grow up. May God do that. Amen. We're done. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Josh and Josh.